0: everyone, welcome to the True Path Podcast. I'm so glad you're joining in today. So today is session 13 in our study of the book of Daniel, and we're going to be discussing the remainder of chapter 7 today, verses 4 through 28. Now, while we're going to cover the whole rest of the chapter, in the interest of time, we're not going to be able to read every single verse. But as you remember from last time, in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 7, there's a shift taking place from narrative accounts to visionary accounts. And so in chapter 7, God's given Daniel a vision of the future. He sees four large beasts coming up out of the sea. And as we know, these beasts represent the same four worldly kingdoms that were in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in chapter 2. But we also see that in Daniel's vision here in chapter 7, it goes beyond Nebuchadnezzar's vision in some very important aspects. First, in Daniel's vision, we see the glorious Son of Man coming on the clouds, and we see God give the kingdom to him. In Daniel's vision, we also see the powerful anti-God personality, as well as the terrible persecution that God's people must endure before the day of victory. Now, as we begin to decipher Daniel's vision given to him by God? Let's remember these three overarching points. First, this is a message of hope and encouragement to the oppressed. Secondly, it's a warning to the oppressor. And finally, it's a call to remain faithful in times of adversity. So let's begin by reading Daniel chapter 7 verses 3 and 4. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from one another. The first was like a lion, but had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. So, one thing we're going to see, that each beast emerges from the sea in succession. They don't come out all at once. And as verse 17 tells us, these huge beasts represent four kings or kingdoms that will rise from the earth. So, the first beast that looks like a lion with eagle's wings is generally thought to be the kingdom of Babylon. The lion, a dominant animal, signifies Babylon's dominion. The lion was also a symbol of royalty in the Babylonian empire. We see with the the wings how swiftly and widespread Babylon conquered and acquired territories. And scholars believe that the fact that the wings were torn off and that the beast was lifted up and set on its feet like a man and given a human mind is a picture of God's rebuke and restoration of King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. But the kingdom of Babylon doesn't last because as verse 5 says, suddenly another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. So the bear represents the kingdom of the Medes and Persians who conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. The Bible also references this in Isaiah 13 verses 17 through 18. So the fact that the bear was raised up on one side could be because the Persians were more more powerful than the Medes. In 550 BC, they defeated the Medes and absorbed them into the empire. The three ribs and the teeth could represent their three greatest conquests: Egypt, Babylon, and Lydia. Now, notice the verse says it was told to get up and gorge itself. It also says that in the in the, be, the beast in verse six was given dominion. These powers are operating under divine appointment. They're not functioning solely on their own initiative. But why? I mean, why would a loving God send an evil empire to conquer and destroy? Well, the short answer is God is sovereign. He made the world and can do what he wants with it. But we all know that there's more to it than that. God has a plan, and his plan is for the best, even if we can't tell. And in this case, History tells us that when the Medes and Persians, the bear, conquered Babylon, the lion, they allowed the Jewish exiles that Babylon had taken to return home and rebuild the temple. So would that have happened if they had not been given control? We also know that because Greece, the third beast in verse 6, was given dominion, they were able to establish a universal language, making it possible later on, for the Bible to be written in a language that everyone could understand. So, yes, God does allow evil empires and nations to gain control. But that does not mean that his plan is not good, and for the best. I'm reminded of what Johnny Erickson Tata said, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. So, as we already mentioned, verse 6 says, After this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads and was given dominion. The leopard being the kingdom of Greece, founded by Alexander the Great. So, this beast had four wings instead of two, indicating the swiftness by which it conquered nations. The four heads could represent the four generals who divided the kingdom after Alexander's death. Now, in verse 7, it talks about the fourth beast that comes out of the sea. And this beast is frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devoured, crushed and trampled everything that was left. It was different from all the other beasts before it. And it had ten horns. So this beast, that's apparently too terrifying for Daniel to even describe, is the Empire of Rome. One of my commentary says Rome was different from all those before it because imperial power was held together by an ideal rather than an individual. Unity in Rome was legal rather than regal. And this beast had ten horns. Now, scholars present several possibilities as to what the ten horns represent. Now, verse 24 tells us that the ten horns are ten kings who will rise from this kingdom. Now, the question presented by scholars is, when in history do these kings or horns rise to power? And according to my research, there are four basic theories as to when these horns appear. Now, two say that the horns are from the past. One says the horns are in the present, and one says they are in the future. Now, the two from the past say that the horns are either ten kings who came from the original Roman Empire, or they are kingdoms that occupy the territory of Rome after it fell in AD 476. The present-day theory is that the Ten Horns are kingdoms, or nations, that have risen throughout history. That they haven't literally come from the Roman Empire, but they embody the nature of Rome. So, you and I would now be living in the time of the Ten Horns. The future theory is that the Ten Horns are a future empire, consisting of ten constituent nations located in the territory of the old Roman Empire. Now, what you believe about verse 8 may shed some light on which theory is most likely. Because verse 8 says, While I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And suddenly in this horn, there were eyes, like the eyes of a human, and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. Now, if you go down to verses 15 through 25, Daniel approaches an angel who was standing nearby, and he asked him to clarify what he's seeing. So the angel tells him that the little horn that appears among the ten horns is another king, but different from the previous ones, because he will subdue three kings. He will speak words against the Most High, and oppress the holy ones of the Most High. He will try and change religious festivals and laws, and the holy ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time until the courts convened and he will be destroyed. Okay, so who is this little horn? Well, the human characteristics that are given to it, eyes and a mouth that speaks arrogantly, indicates this is not a kingdom, but rather an individual. And so who this person is depends upon what you believe about the ten horns. Because those who believe that the ten horns are from the past believe that the little horn is a past king who was particularly ruthless and cruel and tormented God's chosen people. But most of the scholars that I read, and I tend to agree that the little horn represents Antichrist the person who will lead the final assault against the people of God before Jesus' second coming. The little horn is the beast of Revelation 13. He is the final world ruler whose reign of terror during the tribulation will bring to completion the times of the Gentiles. So I'd like to just take a moment and compare the little horn in Daniel 7 with the beast in Revelation 13. So the little horn in Daniel 7, he has a mouth that speaks arrogantly, eyes of a human. He grows in size and power enough to usurp and uproot three of the ten horns before it. He will speak words against God and oppress those who follow God. He will try and change religious ordinances and laws. He will wage war against Christians and will prevail over them for a time, times, and half a time. Now, a time in Scripture generally means a period of time, usually a year. So, a time equals one year, times equals two years, and half a time, half a year, for a total of three and a half years. Now, in Revelation 13, the beast in John's vision was given a mouth to utter boasts and blasphemies against God, He was permitted to wage war against the saints and conquer them. He was given authority over every nation and people. He was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, or three and a half years. So you see the similarities between these two visions. Yet Daniel received his vision over 250 years before John received his So here are two men, two followers of God, one living during the time of the first beast, the other living during the time of the fourth beast, yet both giving corroborating testimonies about the end of days. I mean, that's incredible to me. How can people say that scripture isn't relevant, that it's outdated or antiquated? I mean, how can people say that scripture is no longer applicable? Now, granted, we're not given the specifics of what the end of days will look like, so I can only surmise that if we're not given the specific details, it's because we don't need to know the specific details. But what we do know, and all we need to know, is that Antichrist is a person who is extremely arrogant and powerful, who has an enormous God complex, that he will persecute Christians. To the point that it seems like he might just be victorious. But thankfully, Daniel's vision doesn't end here because in verses nine through 14, we read, "'As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, "'and the Ancient of Days took his seat. "'His clothing was white like snow "'and the hair of his head like whitest wool. "'His throne was flaming fire. "'Its wheels were blazing fire.'" A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened, and the books were opened. I watched then, because of the sound of the arrogant words, the horn was speaking. And as I continued watching, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. In verse 13, it says, "...I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed." So, after the rise of the little horn, Daniel sees God seated in judgment over the nations. There's a quote that said, Human kings may seem to be free to rampage at will, but there is a throne in heaven, and one on it to whom they are ultimately subject. So, Daniel's given a glimpse of heaven, and there he sees a God who reigns in majesty, in wisdom, authority, and justice. But we also know that God is a God of peace, mercy, and salvation. This God who sits on the throne of fiery judgment is the same God who sent his only son to be broken, beaten, and bruised beyond recognition for us. And there will come a time when every person on earth will have a face-to-face encounter with God. Regardless of what they believe or say about Him, they will one day meet Him. And what a person's encounter with God looks like depends on what they believe about Him here on earth. So for those of us who have placed faith and trust in Him for salvation, we won't have to come before God as our judge because our debt has been paid. When we we come before his throne, he will not address us as criminal, but as child. And here, Daniel, he sees God as the Ancient of Days, the eternal God who was there at the world's beginning and will be there at the world's end. His white clothing and hair symbolizing purity, wisdom, experience, majesty, and splendor. God's fiery throne with wheels? Ezekiel also saw a vision of God's throne set on wheels, signifying God's omnipresence. God is everywhere, all the time. He can respond to any situation, in any place. So God takes his seat, court is convened, and the books are opened. Revelation 20, 11-15, God also opens books where people are judged by their works. One commentator says the books are a divine ledger containing the ongoing acts of, and deeds of humanity. The books determine who will be judged. So here, God opens the books and proclaims judgment. And in verse 22, it says, He will judge in favor of His holy ones. And he will give them possession of the kingdom. But in verse 25, the little horn and the evil kingdom, it will be completely destroyed. And then Daniel sees the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he is escorted before the ancient of days. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man in Matthew and Mark. Jesus is the son of man, identifies with humanity. Jesus is both human and divine. And he comes with the clouds and glory and is given dominion over the kingdom of God. Now, I think one thing that we should notice while we're observing this heavenly scene is just how busy it is. I mean, there is a lot going on here. God in splendor and majesty is seated on a fiery throne while untold numbers of angels are serving him. Then Jesus arrives on the clouds and is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Now, I'm not saying that we should take everything in this vision literally. I mean, this is a picture of heaven, presented in a way that the person observing it can understand. Meaning, we can't take Daniel's vision and use it to say that this is exactly what God looks like. I mean, 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us that God is immortal, lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. John Calvin says it this way, We ought not to imagine God in his essence to be like any appearance to his own prophet, but he put on various appearances according to man's comprehension. So although every detail of Daniel's vision can't be taken literally, what it does do is reveal that heaven is a place where God reigns in majesty and Jesus' kingdom is a functioning kingdom. I mean, I think this passage puts to rest the idea that when we die, we'll just be floating around on clouds in some ethereal spiritual haze with wings playing a harp. I mean, verse 14 says that those of every nation and language will serve him, and his followers will reign with him. First Corinthians 6, Second Timothy 2, and Revelation 5 all tell us this. So you and I will play a part in how this kingdom functions. Now, if you're someone who's thinking, well, I don't know, I mean, floating around in a cloud with no pain or stress sounds pretty good. Well, sure, it might for a while, but forever? I mean, even the best vacation becomes boring if there's nothing else. I mean, if that's all there is. But I envision God's kingdom as a place where there is always something new and wonderful and exciting to experience. A place where we will be useful and accomplished. Where we'll be accepted and loved. I mean, there is no better place than that. Now, for Daniel, though, He hasn't had the time to process everything in this vision like we have. And so his initial response, like ours would probably be in verses 15 and 28, is Daniel's distressed. He's terrified. And I'm sure it was quite jarring to see human kingdoms portrayed as beasts and to live in such a, sorry, to see in such a visceral way the sinfulness of humankind. And human beings total disregard for God and his word, despite continuous calls by God to repent and turn to him. I mean, there's so much in this vision that is difficult to understand. But there is one truth that remains, and this should be our takeaway, that life is not just some cosmic accident. We are all a part of a master plan designed by a master creator and we have a choice in what part we play in this master plan following God to ultimate victory or following ourselves to ultimate destruction I read a quote that said history is moving toward a climax in which the righteous will triumph over evil and that brings us to our challenge our challenge is to live like winners To not allow the weight of the world's problems lure you into living a life of defeat. Yes, the race is filled with obstacles. And yes, it's difficult. But we will be victorious. We will win the prize in the end. Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you.